When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 116, The Unjust Exodus. The winter of 1401 could not have been a fun time for Owen and his supporters. The uprising of the previous fall did not lead to massive change, other than the loss of his own lands and similar for his cousins and the Tudors. The aggressive attack of the king against North Wales had meant that most had had to flee to the hills or the mountains, or at least to harder-to-reach areas in and around that part of North Wales. The English likely figured that they had nipped much of the issue in the bud. Certainly, there are suggestions that Henry had larger concerns in England that needed his attention, including the still smoldering discontent of his own nobles. Henry IV was in charge, but not loved and not respected across the country. His tendencies to be brutal-minded and to try and gain revenge against those who he perceived as being traitors generally meant that he was not willing to listen or to be cognizant of what other people thought or felt or acted like and thus had a tendency to be rather abrupt and harsh. This will go on throughout most of his career. Owen was now an outlaw a commoner in English eyes and a traitor. The only way he'd ever be able to repair the damage would have been by making a humiliating surrender to the king at this point and rely upon his mercy. Not something Henry was known for, if we were to be honest about this, during, especially during this period. The Welsh public, however, were voting with their feet. Scholars, clergy, and laborers started to return to Wales from England, bringing with them the backbone of an educated and experienced class of people who were brought up to understand many of the English positions, its language, and its peoples. The English Parliament, in February of 1401, made note of this exodus, including a remarkable comment that these exiles were arming themselves on the way out. Henry's government, in turn, passed strict laws against the Welsh to try and stem what looked to be the beginning of a widening rebellion. These punitive laws, created from 1401 to 1402 in hindsight, could have done nothing but bolster the Welsh side of the rebellion. You give people no choice, you force them to take action, and these laws took away any rights that the Welsh did have. It creates a separation that is unbreakable in some ways. As kind of a rundown, here's what some of these laws were. No Englishman could be convicted of a crime if accused by a Welshman. No Englishman could be convicted by a Welsh jury. Any Welshman caught raiding on the English side of the border had no appeal to justice. He was an outlaw outside of the law and thus treated to mob justice. English women should not marry a Welshman or even date them. No Welshman bearing arms should be allowed in a community or a castle or even on highways. If you were an Englishman 
and you had a Welsh wife, you were to lose your office if you were if you actually had an office at this point. No Welsh children were to be fostered by English families. Welsh were forbidden from holding any sort of fortifications, be they houses or castles. No food could be carried into Wales without a license. Same goes for any sort of arms or armor. No Welshman could hold official posts or titles. And a general ban was established against congregating together. Generally, these would do little to build unity or alliances with the people you were pushing this kind of restrictions onto. In fact, much like what happens in the centuries previous, the more tightly the king sought to restrict the Welsh, the more fled to the Welsh rebellion. In Oxford during 1402, the sheriff was sent to try and track down Welsh students who were f apparently fermenting opposition to the government. These laws were, to an extent, an extension of the old Edwardian laws. Certainly, you can see some of them in the early part of this from the 13th century. And in Edward's day, the excuse was that they needed these harsh measures to civilize the Welsh, whatever that meant exactly. Now, they were purely about punishing those deemed as disloyal. It was meant that simply being Welsh was enough to make one a rebel and thus needed to be treated harshly no matter what side they were on. This has been something that actually more or less given up on over the last number of years. Certainly in the last half of the century, the Welsh were generally treated with respect, had intermarried with the marcher lords, had created connections with the king himself, and now all of a sudden were unworthy of any sort of dignity, any sort of protection, any sort of basic rights. And this is something that had happened at Ireland in the same period, and probably with similar results. I can hardly imagine a peasant farmer caring about some noble revolt, but when your livelihood and safety are threatened, it can hardly leave you with a number of choices. Cultural icons were also seen as part of the problem. Bards, who had sung the praises of all sides at different times, were now not free from this slight. The English courts were rather less complimentary and had rather nasty names for them. Uh, in one quote, Item, to eschew many diseases and mischiefs which have happened before this time in the land of Wales, it is ordained and established that no wasters, rhymers, minstrels, nor vagabonds be in any wise sustained in the land of Wales. So again, going after the livelihood of these minstrels and as they call them, rhymers, but obviously we're talking about bards and poets. So culturally, bards and poets were now forbidden to seek sponsorship and were considered little more than mischief makers. The Welsh culture was under attack, much as the rest of Welsh society. The Welsh language was also to face even more confinement, one that would see it once more relegated to the household rather than public life. These laws and practice were likely easily avoided. In medieval England, known to have brigands and other criminals wandering the woods, the law was likely more nebulous than could be practically applied. However, when you make enough people criminals, when you give carte blanche to the unjust, to carry out vicious justice, in quotes, there is little left for the law-abiding to follow. And certainly, if you look at this just from the text rather than the actual, you can see why most Welsh people felt forced into going against the king and to the English. 
Certainly there were Welsh men and women who lived the English law and felt no affinity to the new erstwhile prince and his revolt. Certainly in the marcher areas, there would be those who would join the English side in the fighting of this rebellion. But there can be no doubt about both the fact that they had these people on their side, but they were also creating a national problem. This is one that up until this point, I would argue, wasn't really perceived the same as we would perceive it now. But slowly but surely, just your place of birth is determining so much more than it did previously. And certainly the consequences of this must have been massive. You have to understand that at this point, it's been a hundred years since Edward and Llewellyn. There isn't really any historical link for people alive at this point with Llewellyn and with independence. It's some nebulous thing that people think about, not dissimilarly to the way we think of the Victorian era. Certainly, in some respects, we understand it. We know it exists. We know roughly what it was like. But other than maybe somebody's distant grandparent talking about it one time to a parent or a grandparent or even a great-grandparent, depending on how old you are, you're not going to have any clue what life was like before phones, before indoor plumbing, before electricity, and all of these things that came about because of the Industrial Revolution and the succeeding generations after that. All of those mighty changes that people who lived 100 years ago saw come into their lives were unusual and unexpected and unknown at that point, and fascinating and exciting as a new iPhone might be today, or Android, depending on your flavor of choice, the reality of it is is that it's hard for us to understand or, or put ourselves in that place. And it's very similar here. The idea of an independent Wales, separate from England, must have been a nebulous thing to this point. Certainly there would be people who would be aggrieved by what was going on. Certainly there'd be people frustrated. But you wouldn't have the same national sense about it that you would have now. And as we can say, one of the unintended results of this would be to create a nation amongst the Welsh. The concept and idea of being Welsh was now vitally important to identity as well as to your basic existence. Certainly, there was a sense of common culture, and I've always felt that there was a general sense that not anything that could be considered a nation-state of Wales the medieval concepts of feudal duty were already frail at this point in time and were breaking down under the strain of change that kept hitting society over the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. Certainly, it will not slow down in the next few hundred years. But nonetheless, you had these connections that were built very differently. This would help create a military subculture of mercenaries that would be built up for the Hundred Years of War and then all the way through the Renaissance, the idea of fighting for your lord was not gone at this stage, but the end was coming. And so with all this change, with all these challenges, and then add on top of it all this unruly and unjust treatment, the Welsh of 1401 were left with little choice. Owen or subjugation. It doesn't take a lot of guesses to see what people would choose given those two options. And it was foolish. Henry didn't need to do that. He, the parliament didn't need to go that far. And the fact that they did allowed a guy like Owen to rise up and bring with him 
a number of people. As mentioned last episode, on March 10, 1401, a general pardon was issued. Some took it, including Owen's own son and brother, who received these pardons, but many others didn't even apply. And even those who did receive the pardons continued to fight with Owen. So really, that's kind of the situation we're in early in 1401. The first real success of 1401 comes about when the Tudors capture Conway Castle, one of the many English towns that, and castles that were built as a part of Edward's Iron Ring, but also his tendency to want to anglicize Wales. On Good Friday, April 1st, 1401, several men invaded the castle, taking it by force while the English were at prayer. This would obviously be you know, in the middle of a worship service, a worshipful time in Christendom. So it was an interesting point in time to do this. While they couldn't hold the castle, uh, they were able to force a settlement on the English, including a pardon for all of the 35 men who were involved in the siege. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. And on July 24th in 1401, the castle actually passed back into English hands. But the Welsh attackers left through the front gate unmolested and, on top of it, with pardons. It was daring and risky, and the attack had worked to bolster Welsh morale. However, one thing to note, and something not all academics agree on, but the fight at 
Conwy had more to do with the desire for the Tudors to get pardons, to get their own back against the king, rather than Owen's greater well-stream or strategy, or even his responsibility. He, the contemporary records don't even mention Owen at all at this stage, and the town was not really in his normal area of influence. The castle lies on the north coast, the edge of the old four cantrips. It would have been a key area of control for English armies were using it while moving through Tudor lands into northwest Wales. So you can understand why this would be a very strategic point to control, something of importance that you wouldn't want to let slip to others, and it would explain why the Tudors were so vigorous in taking it and holding it. Meanwhile, another uprising occurred on the 24th of May in Abergavenny. A number of people attacked a group of knights about to carry out an execution of three men in the local area. The knight in charge, Sir Wilson Lucy, was killed and these three men were freed. Apparently this came about in part because the English had decided to carry out this execution on a day of celebration for the Feast of the Ascension, uh, one of the few super positive Christian holidays where they celebrated the Ascension of Christ to Heaven. So thus was considered to be a very holy and important day. And so the fact that they took that as an opportunity to kill these men had been something of a bone to pick for these locals. However, this had been a problem area stretching back the week earlier on May 16th. English soldiers from Hereford were sent to relieve a siege that had been carried out on the castle at Abergavenny. So the region was already at war, more or less, with the English at the ground level, even if it wasn't a direct conflict in the way that we would think about it. It had a lot more in common with a more modern guerrilla war where you'd have pockets of uprisings kind of happening in fluid ways and in natural ways that would then subside only for it to pick up somewhere else. And that's kind of what 1401 mostly becomes for a while. It's more about trying to hit a mole, whack-a-mole kind of idea, where one thing would pop up, they'd hit that. Another thing would pop up, they'd try and hit that. Another thing would happen, they'd try. And so the English didn't have like a direct war to carry out. It was more rush troops here, rush troops there. And because of that, it was much more difficult to figure out gain control. There wasn't really a head of the Welsh resistance at this point that someone could point to, and as we said last time, could arrest, could put in jail, and just end the whole problem. On May 26th, more troops came into Carmarthen, which was rumored to be rising up against the English. The troops were then called from counties across 14 different cities and counties in England to try and help deal with this issue. And on May 28th, more troops were summoned to deal at last with Owen. This was the first sign of him being in the field since last autumn. The English Lord of Powys, John Charlton, was called out to deal with Glyndor. Charlton had tried to engage Glyndor some days later, but Owen simply melted back into the forest and escaped the English forces, who were then left with some horses, some armor, weapons, and, for some strange reason, a drape of cloth, but not a Welsh rebel in sight. Some have said, including Henry Percy Jr., that they had actually injured the Welsh, but at this point that didn't seem evident, didn't seem likely, or if it was, it was very minimal. It's very easy to say you've injured somebody that obviously you don't have bodies because injuries 
you know, don't necessarily lead to bodies. Uh, and it may be that there was, they just never ever did achieve anything and took some losses and then kind of blamed it on the fact that, oh, the Welsh, they took injuries. They got hit, you know, kind of the way they very consistently through this time period, you know, the numbers that were attacking you were always inflated and the numbers you killed were always inflated. It's just something people do when they're in these kind of situations and they don't necessarily either understand what's going on in the heat of battle or secondly, uh, don't want to fess up that something went seriously wrong and they can't make it look like they did something about it. However, Henry Percy, as we mentioned, Jr., uh, known now by the epithet of Hotspur, was a leader of the English against the Welsh in the North during this period. He saw the revolt gaining steam and was calling for aid from the king. He was very desperate, actually, to be sort of put in the lead of the armies that were carrying on the defense and attacks from England, and it would become a bone of contention between him and the king in later days. Uh, but nonetheless, he sent an urgent letter at this point saying that the Scots had captured Bardsley Island. The island's a small, tiny island off the coast of Llyn, the very end of northwest Wales. Uh, it is well known for having a monastery on it at one point and being considered a holy island, probably from pagan times, I would gather, that then, of course, Christians, being Christians, turned into a site of, of holiness. Uh, if you go to it today, you can still see it at the end of the peninsula. It's it's a, a kind of a, a hill mound of an island, but it's, it's, it's really cool. And the idea that the Scots would have captured it is a very interesting one for sure. Um, if true, it might explain why Owen was sending letters to Robert III, who was the king of Scotland at the time. He was seeking with him an alliance in the hopes that Scot the Scots would send help, mostly to try and create an anti-English faction. If it worked, it would be something that they could use to, to defend themselves. And it would be one he could work towards with a few years uh, to create a broader and bigger alliance with other European nations. But at this stage, it appears to have been too early to bear fruit. And much as the enemies of England wanted her taken down, they would not necessarily be drawn into a war that was little more than a squabble at this point. Uh, well, with the benefit of hindsight, we could see that kind of aggressive move by the Scots might have actually been super helpful. You don't really know because to this point, the Welsh don't have any major victories. There's nothing really to point to of a mass organization. Owen could just be speaking for himself, not for a general revolt in, in total. But nonetheless, it's an important point. It's one of the first times Owen is writing and appealing to others to help with the rebellion that we actually have record of. Owen is trying to build a bridge in this first appeal to Robert. He first does so by appealing to his vanity, tying him to ancient British kings that were described by Geoffrey Monmouth. He then connects his own line to the last British king, Cowalder, uh, trying to tie both of them together through a family lineage as well as a common ancestor. He calls Robert of his same blood that they were both descendants of King Brutus, the mythological first king of Britain, who came largely due to a desire. This whole mythology was a desire to link Britain to the Roman mythology of Aeneas. Brutus was considered a grandson of Aeneas, the former Trojan who helped 
found early Rome in some of the later Republican and early imperial stories. Thus, Brutus, like the founders of Rome, went on an adventure coming to the British Isles to fight off giants and other people to create his new kingdom. So, having a famous hero, considered to be the true founder of the British people at the time, as your lineal connection gave you a key tie that you could bind together your argument with him. In the letter, he says, Since Cudwalder's death, However, my forebearers and all my people have been, and as we still are, subjected and held in bondage by mine and your mortal enemies, the Saxons. Which, considering Owen had fought against Robert's family not that long ago for said Saxons, uh, it's an interesting take. It's worth noting that Owen is not calling them English or Normans, which would be more appropriate, but Saxons. Why would he choose that epithet specifically? Well, because in part, Robert is related to the Norman nobility that conquered and settled Scotland after the conquest. You might want to avoid bringing that nugget up. Another point made by Dr. Bro is that by using Saxon, it brings an image of a savage pagan people rather than a Christianized and civilized one, thus allowing Owen to further denigrate Henry and the English. The Stuart line comes to Scotland via Normandy in the 11th century, meaning, most likely, that he had very little in the way of British inheritance. But, with medieval genealogies being rather wonky affairs at best, this would probably be impolite to bring up at least that part of it. Owen goes on to request Scottish support in Wales, in prose, pleading to the king for help. And in so doing, Owen would not just ally himself with Scotland, but consider him his liege lord, the person really in charge of him, even offering to give him untying allegiance until the end of his days. Another interesting artifact of the time was that the two parties were not communicating in Latin, as would have been normal political communication language of the clerical staff and the clergy, but rather in French, the language of the Normans, as well as the old allies, in, obviously in France. Unfortunately for Owen, his position was not particularly strong yet. His revolt was still in its infancy and thus could not be counted on as a success just yet. Robert, meanwhile, was weak and sick and was a king of a divided court who would not throw their lot in with Owen at this stage. This meant that help could not be found in Scotland. Instead, Owen and his troops would have to gather more Welsh rebels to his cause, likely at this point fully gaining the Tudors on board after their pardons had been approved and creating a larger Welsh hegemony, at least in the north. One of the ways he was doing this, and in fact did in the letter to Robert, was to use prophecy, something that all monarchs and nobles took part in during the medieval period and even before, and it was particularly important to Owen to mention these things. His supporters, and in his writings to foreign leaders, he brought up his links to the prophecy of Merlin, the idea that he was the one true king, the inheritor of Arthur's uh, role to take back the kingdom of Britain and all of those ideals. And this was kind of his fulfilling that prophecy of ridding England from Wales and freeing the British people from Saxon rule. He would likely go lighter on that prophecy with his English allies later in the war, 
But for now, and later again with the French, it was a key part of his stance. It was a way to describe why he was right, that he was chosen by God to stand up against the English, to rid Wales of the evil of their control. It, if nothing else, it would make great propaganda piece to use for your people, and certainly with erstwhile allies or people trying to decide whether to jump on board. Kind of that David and Goliath effect and and rooting for, you know, the underdog and building all that kind of concept. However, one side effect of these claims was to create a belief in the English that the Welsh were not just out to reclaim their country, but were also looking to kill Henry and his son and to destroy the English language. Likely as a result, it created alarm amongst the populace. It worked to create a sense of outrage and a sense of duty amongst the English to take on the Welsh. It was absolutely false, but this is war. An alarmed, paranoid populace is best used against the enemy. Also, your harsh edicts would be viewed likely with more favor, particularly if it's against that same enemy. And with that, we're going to call an end to this episode. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Uh, always appreciate a like and uh, sharing us out. Really appreciate those. And of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.